Matthew chapter 13 together. Title of this message is Trusting Judgment. Trusting Judgment. We're going to cover a lot of ground uh, this morning. We'll get all the way into chapter 14, but to start, we'll just read a few verses. We'll just read Jesus' words in Matthew 13, verses 47 through 52 to start, and then we'll navigate our way through the rest of the text kind of as the sermon progresses. I will be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. We were in the NLT for a few weeks uh, during that series. Now we are in the uh, NIV. So Jesus speaking in Matthew 13, starting in verse 47, says, Once again... The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, the disciples replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. This is God's word. Let's pray. We praise you and we thank you, God, for your holy word. We thank you for the joy of discovering old treasures and new treasures in your word. We thank you that the unfolding of your word brings light to our lives, to our world. We ask today that you would bless our ears to hear the unfolding of your word. Open our eyes to see your truth and your glory and your goodness and your love. Please loose my lips and open my mouth to speak your truth in a way that is absolutely faithful to the Bible and to you and really helpful to this church whom I love. We ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus is finishing up a series of parables he's been giving us. And you know, some of his parables are, are a little enigmatic. That is a little hard to understand, a little mysterious. And once in a while, he'll explain those for us. But more often than not, we're kind of left to our own to try to discern the meaning of those parables. But sometimes they're just plain and clear, as is the case in this parable, the parable of the net. It's not only plain and clear, it's redundant to a parable that he gave just a few verses before, the parable of the tares of the parable of the tares and the wheat. This parable basically tells us, Jesus tells us here, that there is coming a future judgment where God will discern between and sort out once and for all, for all of eternity, the righteous and the wickedness. Righteousness and wickedness. Jesus tells us that there is coming a day of reckoning. The evil will not go forever unaccounted for. In God's kingdom, part of the work of God's kingdom in this world is discerning between and fully dealing with the difference between righteousness and wickedness. Now, that is important because we live in a world that's not really good at discerning the difference between the two. We live in a world that likes blurred lines. We live in a world that likes shades of gray. 
We live in a world that is into reversalism, as we spoke about uh, several weeks ago. That's a concept that I, I, I made up. The idea that uh, <clears throat> we have begun to call good what was once evil and evil what was once esteemed good. We live in a culture that now celebrates what was once condemned and condemns what was once celebrated. Scripture warned us 700 years before Christ came, 2,700 years ago, This would be a trajectory, a proclivity of humanity and warned us against it. You remember these words from Isaiah 5 where it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sights. So the word of God says there, there, there was going to be and, and, and warns against and, and condemns those who would want to reimagine righteousness, reframe wickedness, redefine morality and say, well, yeah, we know that that was bad, but now we're calling it good. And we know that that was good, but that's actually bad. And aren't we so wise in doing this? Woe to those. And that is part of the perpetuation, the propagation of evil in our world. And sometimes in this world of blurred lines and shades of, shades of gray and reversalism, sometimes it could seem like in this life that evil is going unchecked. It could seem like a wave or a tide that's sweeping across the land. But Jesus brings us hope in this parable by telling us that the, the lines won't always appear to be blurred. There's coming a day of clear decision and clear reckoning and clear division between righteousness and wickedness, the righteous and the wicked. That's part of the work of God's kingdom. And Christ's words here are meant to bring us hope. Now, it's not just Jesus in this one instance speaking about this. This is a big, broad biblical doctrine. This is an important part of Christian theology. The idea of final judgment is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. Our entire faith rests in part on the idea that there will be a day of judgment, a final reckoning. If there weren't going to be, then there's no need for repentance for our sins and no need for forgiveness from God. But the whole point of Jesus' death on the cross is that he is taking judgment for us in our place. And this happens because God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Because God loves us, God provides a way of forgiveness through Christ because he loves us. It's a function of God's love. But if God truly loves us, if God is actually a God of love, then God must not only make a way to forgive sin, but God must also judge sin. If God is truly a God of love, then there must be a day of reckoning. There must be a day of separating righteousness from wickedness. There must come a time where God deals finally and fully with evil. It is not love to allow evil to go ultimately unchecked. 
Now, we are rather myopic. We think mostly about ourselves. We're egocentric. So sometimes we, we think, gosh, you'd really be loving of God if you would just like let my bad stuff go. You know what I mean? But we don't often think sort of on a global historic humanity level. And if we do, we realize it would not be loving of God to just let some stuff go. There is real evil, real wickedness, real reverberating effects of evil in our world that mar and maim and pervert and torment and break humanity. So if God truly loves the world, then God must judge the world. Part of the hard part about living in this age, sometimes known as the age of grace or the age of the church, part of the hard part of living between the cross of Christ where Jesus was judged in our place so that we who put our faith in Christ can have the forgiveness of sins and escape final judgment. Part of the tension of living between that time of the cross and when Christ comes again to judge the world is that we, we see sin, we see evil, we see the rejection of truth, and it feels, as I said before, that it sometimes it's out of control and it goes unchecked. And it can be hard to live in that tension. Sometimes it feels unfair. Sometimes we feel powerless and hopeless in the face of evil. But again, God has promised that ultimately evil will not go unchecked. In fact, God says in his word, it's a silly thought to think that I want to someday deal with these things. Psalm 92, he says this, only a simpleton would not know and only a fool would not understand this. In the NIV, it says only a stupid person. It's a biblical word, you can use it. (laughs) Only a simpleton would not know, only a fool would not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like weeds and evildoers flourish, right? There's there's the, the psalmist's perception that, gosh, evil's getting away with it and actually doing good. They will be destroyed forever. But you, O oh Lord, will be exalted forever. Your enemies, Lord, will surely perish and evildoers will be scattered. The Bible is explicit from beginning to end that there is a day of reckoning, the day of judgment. And what Jesus is calling us to do in this text is to trust judgment. I want you to grab that phrase. Jesus is calling us to trust judgment. Realizing all the while that judgment is good. It is the proof of God's love and the proof that God is just. It is the way in which God will set all things right. And we need to trust that, that God is good, God is love, God is just, and God will set all things right. So how does that then play out in our lives? What does it look like to trust judgment as followers of Jesus in this age? Well, I I think there's several ways that we could talk about that, but we have an interesting example here in Jesus. I want us to notice what happens immediately after he talks about this coming day of judgment. Right, this is not by mistake, this is by design. Look what happens immediately after. Pick it up in verse 53 of Matthew 13. This is when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown, that's Nazareth. He began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this a carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this guy get all these things? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet 
It's not without honor, except in his own town and in his own house. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Pause right there. I want you to notice. Jesus just said there will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. He moves on from there and he experiences outright rejection. Now look what happens next. Verse four, chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, <clears throat> Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, here's the backstory. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Okay. So Jesus tells his disciples, there's going to be a day where righteousness and wicked will be divided, where wickedness will be ultimately dealt with. There is a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a place called hell. There is coming a day of reckoning. He leaves from there and he goes to Nazareth. He experiences outright rejection from the people in his hometown. And right on the heels of that, he is confronted with abject evil in the actions of Herod. I mean, the the, the evil in the story, right? Herod was sleeping with his sister's, or excuse me, his brother's wife. And John the Baptist was coming to Herod saying, dude, you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that. And so Herod said, man, I, I want to sleep with my brother's wife. I'm the king. I can do what I want to do. I'm putting you in prison. Puts him in prison. And then on his birthday, the woman with whom he was sleeping, her daughter came and danced for Herod and his guests. And this wasn't the moonwalk. It's what you think it probably was. This was like a seductive thing that was going on. And Herod was so turned on by this, so pleased by this, in an extremely foolish and evil moment, he said, I'll give you anything. And her being moved by some unseen radical evil goes to her mom and her mom says, I want the head of the man who's confronting my adultery. And Herod says, oh, this is, this is getting a bit gnarly. But because he said he would, and because of the dinner guest present, he didn't want to look like he was cheesing out on his promise. Because of his pride, he cut the head of John the Baptist off, and they brought it in in a platter. This is abject, horrific evil. Jesus teaches on judgment. He walks away from that parable, and he experiences outright rejection. And on the heels of that, he's confronted with abject evil. Now, what does Jesus do? I think that's what what happens next is Jesus showing us a different way to exist in the presence of evil and the rejection of truth. 
Look what it says in the very next verse, just the first half of the next verse, chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Stop right there. Now, when Jesus withdraws by a boat privately and goes to a lonely place, we know what he's doing. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has a rhythm of going away to lonely places to be with the Father. He goes to commune with, to connect with, to pray to, to be in the presence of the Father. We know what Jesus was doing. Jesus here is showing us how to trust judgment. This is a living example of what trusting judgment can look like in this kind of world with the rejection of the truth and abject evil seemingly going unchecked. Jesus withdraws into the presence and the love of the Father. Now, Jesus could have done a lot of things. I mean, he's Jesus. He could have done anything that he wanted to. And it's not like Jesus was afraid to do gnarly things, right? Like remember when he went in the temple and they were selling all this stuff and he starts overturning the tables and then it actually says in one of the gospels, he grabbed a whip and he started whipping the people. Like Jesus knows how to open up a can of whoop when he wants to. He could do that. Other times, like he confronted the Pharisees, you know, like, why you whitewashed tombs? Like Jesus could have done anything. And there is a time for overturning tables and opening up cans, so to speak, calling people out. There is a time for that. But Jesus is showing us what it looks like in the face of the rejection of the truth and the proliferation of evil to look upward and draw something from the Father. This is something new, but this is also something old. This is a treasure we can grab onto. This has always been the posture of God's people in the face of evil and the rejection of truth. Think about the psalmist. The psalms are a place where we see this beautifully displayed. Look here in Psalm 61. The psalmist is in trouble. As we often are, he says, hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer, right? There's something he's experienced in his life that's difficult. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint or overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Pause right there. Rock that is higher than I, meaning God. He's saying, I've got this trouble going on in my life. I'm confronted with these difficulties. It's way bigger than me. I am overwhelmed by the experience of life right now. Can anybody relate? I thought more of you, but whatever. Happy your life. Look what he says to God. For you have been a refuge for me. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's experiencing. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Dwelling, refuge, shelter language. Beautifully, beautiful imagery, excuse me, that comes up over and over in the Bible. This, this metaphor of God being pictured as like the, the, the mother hen, the, the mother bird with the wings. Right? And there's little tiny helpless chickies. You ever seen little chickies? You've never seen a more helpless thing. Like their eyes aren't even open. They're just like, just little fuzzies, just so fragile. How would they ever live? They would never survive if mom didn't come and just. Whoosh. And then like, 
That's the safest, most secure, solid, steady, warmest, comforting, nurturing place little chickies could ever be. Sometimes life leaves us feeling like fuzzy little chickies, you know what I mean? Like the world seems so big and so radical and we can barely see and we're just shaking, looking for something. And God is beckoning us into his presence to take refuge in him, to find shelter in him, to experience this thing where he's like the mother bird who wraps her wings around us. That's what Jesus is doing in the face of rejection and abject evil. Look at the psalmist again. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. There's an invitation and a promise. An invitation and a promise. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High, right? You try to get to that little baby bird place, will find rest, there's a promise, in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trust him. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His promises are your armor and protection. Now, it's not that there isn't a time to fight. There's a time to fight. It's not that there isn't a time to contend for truth. It's time to contend for truth. It's not that there isn't a time to radically confront injustice and evil. There absolutely is. But never in lieu of the experience of the safety, the strength, the power, the covering, the love, and the clarity of the Father's presence. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Man, he knew rejection. He knew radical evil. He's going into the Father's presence. That's a place of strength, peace, and clarity. Listen, sometimes we're like those baby birds and our eyes aren't even open yet. And we we need somehow to have our eyes open to the true situation. We need to get perspective. This is what time with the Father does for us. Look at the psalmist again. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good, and he does not despise evil. Right? There's, pause right there, a picture of Herod, a picture of much of humanity in our world. But then look how the Thomas... Uh, the, the Thomas. The psalmist turns. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Meaning, though it seems in this world sometimes like evil's going unchecked and like you don't see and you don't know, your loving kindness and your faithfulness actually pervade everything in creation. Then he goes on to say, your righteousness... It's like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. 
They drink their fill of the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. How good does that sound? The river of your delights? I don't even know what that means, but it just sounds good. Like you give them to drink of the river of your delights. I just want to like open up and drink. Verse nine, I want you to see this. For with you is a fountain of life. In your light, we see light. There it is. In your light, in his presence, we see light. Confronted with darkness, the rejection of truth, we need to get in that place where we can see light. That's the Father's presence. This is an invitation to the place of strength and peace and clarity in the face of evil. Now, it's not just evil out there in the world. You know, but we also need clarity about ourselves, don't we? Because we too find ourselves to be a rebellious people. We wander. We need clarity about our own actions, our own thought processes, our own proclivities. And this is why the invitation into the presence of the Father, where we come into that sheltered place of refuge and strength and clarity. In your light, we see light. And then it's from that place that we can fight. It's from that place that we can contend for truth. It's from that place that we find the strength to confront evil in all of its forms. But Jesus is showing us a primary way to exist in the face of evil. First, get with the Father. And he was really intentional about it. He like got in a boat by himself. Said to the guys like, I'm leaving, dude. And he either put up the sail or like got out the oars, but he went by himself intentionally to get away with the Father. If Jesus was intentional to get with the Father, how much more do we need to be? Intentionally pressing in to the presence and the love of the Father. And in that, I think Jesus is teaching us how to trust judgment. That's what that was. That was a living living example there. He just taught that there's going to be a day of division between righteousness and wickedness. Then he went and got rejected. Then he saw abject evil. He went into the presence of the Father. Trusting judgment enough to withdraw into God to receive that clarity, peace, and strength. Now, let's talk for a moment about trusting judgment. I would say for myself, I don't know about you, it's generally easy for me to trust judgment in the sort of um, mega issues, you know what I mean? Like on a a macro sense, like systemic evil in the world and and, and the big evil and dark situations in the world. Like I I don't even doubt it. I know I I, I can trust God. I I, I think that's really important unless we get overwhelmed by some of those things. We gotta trust there's coming a day where God will deal with that, where he'll right every wrong, where he'll make all things new, where he will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow. We've gotta trust in that and believe in that. And it's sometimes easy to do that for the big issues of the world. You know where I find it harder to do it? In the big issues of my ego. 
That's where I find it hard to do. In other words, where people slight or hurt or wound me and my ego, I find it harder to trust God's goodness and justice and his judgment with those issues than I do the big ones of the world. I mean, I, we, we, I'll just say we, because I don't, me, I, we're sick. Like people in this world are getting, I mean, there's really, really evil things happening in the world and we can read about it in the news and let it go, but hold on to the small offense that happened 10 years ago forever. Like we're sick. And both of those are trusting judgment. Trusting God to deal with these big macro things and trusting God to deal with these places in our heart where we harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. Because, you know, I, I, I read about the news and those things that happen, those horrific things that happen, and I say, oh, God will deal with it. God will God will bring, you know, God will... But then these things in my heart, I'm like, I got to get even. I got to show that I was right. I got to be vindicated. I got to get a one-up on them. Am I the only one that's like this? Sometimes I feel like I'm more like this than the rest of you guys. No, okay. So that's where it's hard in this, like I'm bringing it down a funnel now, right? Like this big, like Herod type systemic evil. I'm bringing it down a funnel to like our own hearts. What does it look like to trust judgment in our own hearts? Turn to Romans chapter 12. We won't have it on the screen, so turn there. Romans chapter 12. We will not be back to Matthew today, so you can leave that. Go to Romans. Chapter 12. Uh, we'll read several verses here that kind of touch on, on that idea of trusting judgment as it comes to our personal lives and interpersonal relationships and our egos and stuff. Uh, we'll start for a little bit of context in verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes to us and says about our relationships with one another, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Pause right there. How good is verse 12? Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That's such a good like life help verse. You guys are getting Jeremiah 29 11 tattooed on you. You ought to get this one. This is a good one. Just neck tat. Just so you see it every day. Joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. Do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now let's narrow in here on the idea. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Trusting Jesus with judgment, trusting that he will judge righteously. He's called in scripture the faithful, true judge. Trusting him with those issues of our hearts, right? Where we're wounded, where we wound each other, each other where there's unforgiveness and friction and all these things. Now, we kind of like this passage a little bit. We don't like it because it's like, don't return evil for evil. And that's kind of what we want to do. We want to like get even and like, you know. Uh, but we also like the idea that it says, but don't take vengeance for yourself. Let God do that. We're like, that's right, sucker. God will deal with you. God will deal with you. We like that part. But here's a little bit of the tension. We, we, like Jonah, realize very soon that God is way too merciful. That was the whole whale thing. Like that's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was disgusted by those people and he knew that God would have mercy on them and forgive them. He's like, I don't want them to have mercy. I don't want them to be forgiven. I want them to feel the heat. I want them to suffer. I want them to wallow in their shame so I'm not going. And the big fish came. You know, but sometimes we're like that. Like we, and God says, listen, It is not for you to take vengeance. You are not the judge. Trust the judge. Trust judgment. Trust Jesus to deal with those things. So far as it depends upon you, you be at peace. You forgive and trust them with God. Forgiveness is not dependent upon, um, I don't know, I'm looking for some word, Uh, but forgiveness is by nature something that someone didn't deserve. You say, well, once they prove themselves or once they do this or such and the other, or they make amends or, or, oh, there's another word, whatever, then I'll forgive them. But that's not the point of forgiveness. While we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us and forgave us. Forgiveness by its very nature is undeserved. So as far as it depends upon you, you forgive. And as far as all that other unresolved stuff, stuff, you trust the judge. And we can trust Jesus to be the judge for a few reasons. Number one, Jesus loves perfectly. Number two, Jesus knows everything. Number three, Jesus judges without impartiality. Number four, Jesus is perfectly just. And number five, Jesus is totally merciful. So we can trust him to judge. He makes a good judge. All those reasons are why we make bad judges, right? Because we don't love perfectly. We don't know the situation, the ins and outs of people's hearts completely. We don't function without impartiality. We don't know what true justice always looks like. And we don't have good mercy. So we, by definition, are bad judges, but we can trust Jesus to judge. He's good. He's a faithful and true judge. 
And you know when you, you need a judge, like you need a judge to bring justice when things are unfair. And guess what? Did your mama ever teach you? Like life isn't fair, right? Like did your mom ever used to say that? That's not fair. Life isn't fair, kid. Get over it. It seemed mean at the time, but it's good help. Peter, who was with Jesus when he said all these things and experienced all these things, wrote later on toward the end of his life these words about unfair situations, unjust and unfair situations. He said, For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten or suffering for doing what is wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Here's his steps. He never sinned nor deceived nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. There's trust in judgment. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Another translation says he kept entrusting himself to the faithful judge. That's our example. That's why we have this. We keep entrusting ourselves to the faithful judge in macro evil in the world and a little evil in our hearts. We keep entrusting ourselves to the faithful judge. And then comes around to the cross. Good job, Peter. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Peter brings it around to the cross because the cross is the place where the justice and the mercy of God meet. The justice and the mercy of God meet in the cross of Jesus Christ. So that whenever we doubt God's love in this crazy world, we can look to the cross and say, there is the evidence that God loves us. Whenever we doubt God's goodness or justice in this crazy world, we can look to the cross where Christ suffered for our sins in our place and say, no, God is good and he actually does deal with sin. And this sustains us. This gives us hope. This also beckons us to realize that if this is true, if what Jesus said is true, that there's a future day of judgment, then today is a day to repent of our sins and seek forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross in our place to pay the price for our sins that we might be forgiven by God and reconciled to God and experience loving relationship and eternal life with him. If you refuse what Christ did on the cross for you and don't accept it, then your only choice ever before God is full and final judgment on your own merit. God doesn't grade on a curve. Didn't you love the teachers at school that graded on a curve? Didn't you love them? Because you could get together with your bros and be like, let's just all suck together and then we'll all do good. 
Like that was such a no-brainer. This test will be graded on a curve. Got it. God doesn't grade on a curve. We can't all just suck together and get away with it. God is just. God is righteous. God will judge sin. And you either receive the forgiveness that happened when Christ was judged in your place or you will stand on your own merit where the standard is absolute holiness, perfection, and righteousness in God himself. And that'll be the separation between those who are righteous in their faith in Christ and the wicked who rejected the truth of Christ. And there will be for them weeping, outer darkness, and gnashing of teeth. That's a horrible truth. That's also a good truth. Jesus is the one who's delivered us from the judgment to come. And Jesus is the one who is beckoning us into the love of the Father through this text. So be intentional. Get in your boat this week. Put up the sail. Put down the oars and sail into the wings and the love of the Father and live from that place. Amen? Amen. Thank you, God, for your great inviting love. Thank you, God, for Christ, through whom we have forgiveness, through whom we can approach your throne of grace, through whom we can actually commune with you and experience the the strength and peace and clarity of being tucked under your wings. Help us as people to know how to do that. The busyness of our life, with all our distractions, help us to know how to draw near to the Father. Lord, I, I sense in this room there's people this morning who are saying, I, I, I want that. I don't really know quite how to get there and dwell in that place. Holy Spirit, I've done my best. You, Holy Spirit, are the teacher of all things. Lead them in paths of righteousness. Lead us, God, into green pastures and beside still waters. Beckon us into the throne of grace where we can receive help in the time of need. Holy Spirit, it's your job to minister the love of the Father to our hearts. We ask that with your help, this love would be so irresistible that we would strive to dwell in that place. We ask for us as a church that your nearness would be our good. And that in your presence, we would discover fullness of joy. And that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. In Jesus' name.